week um, for Israel. I, I mentioned it in our three classes, the one preceding yours and then the one to follow, just on the spur of the moment. And then my wife mentioned it in her uh, two classes and uh, the uh, offering just on the spur of the moment from you was $6,600. Extraordinary, extraordinary. And then the next day, others chose to contribute directly to the organization I mentioned to you, Hope for Israel. Uh, and so, um, and that, that sum in total thus far has exceeded 8,000 additional dollars. So, um, so then I, we, I had to figure out, and how do I get it to them? And I'm not good at this stuff. So just to give an accounting, we, my wife and I counted it all. Me once, she the second time and corrected me on my count. And then um, we deposited it in our account because you made out checks to me and all the rest. And, uh, and, and we deposited the, well, we kept the cash because we couldn't deposit it. But then we used a credit card, our credit card, because that was the quickest way to get it to them. So they have an online site called It's Hope for Israel. So I went there, and there's a button, a tab, Donate. So if you click Donate, then it talks you through all these steps. So um, we found out the credit card was the, the quickest way to get it to them. I called. His name is Moran Rosenblatt to ask, what, you know, what's the quickest way? And he was absolutely overwhelmed. I got his email about 3 o'clock in the morning bef- on Sunday before coming here, and he explained the situation and what they're doing and said, if you would like to help, it would be greatly appreciated. I just mentioned it to you. People were unbelievably generous. He was just astoundingly moved to tears. Anyway, so we pushed some buttons and got it. Hello, brother. Hi, folks. Oh, my goodness, it's been a thousand years. A millennium. You guys look great. Have you repented? Have you moved back? No repentance? (laughs) Really great. Listen, your mustache is still there. Your beard, a little different color. (laughs) We used to be friends a long time ago. Wow, what a surprise. So anyway, um, it, it, it got to them. And then the additional funds are going through the missions department by some earmarked for hope for, for Israel. Anyway, long and short of it, the funds got there. So then I heard from Moran, and he told me a neat story. He was in the States when all this happened, and his staff visited the families, they moved families from the southern part of Israel, they were under rocket fire, to a hotel in Jerusalem. This is a missions organization, but they don't call themselves that because that's not a good term to use in the Middle East. So they were contacted by one of the residents of this agricultural collective asking for help. Hope for Israel provided it, moved about 20 families, including children, to a hotel in Jerusalem. The monies you provided went towards that and also to provide supplies for soldiers. So his staff visited the people in the hotels, probably one that we stayed in Jerusalem, I don't remember which one. And the people said to his staff, 
Who are you? Why did you do this? What motivated you to do this? They don't, they don't know about hope for Israel. So they had an unbelievable opportunity to share the gospel and how they were moved by the loving God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who so loved that he sent his only begotten son. So it opened up tremendous opportunities for conversation with parents and children and, and all the rest. So, so thank you. This is not the first time the church has provided on the spur of the moment for special offerings like this. And uh, it's really, really, really a giving church. And I think this church illustrates the biblical principle that you can't outgive God. Uh, whenever I pull up to this new facility during the week and Sundays, Wednesday, I think, oh, my goodness, look where we worship. Debt free. What a campus. What I know sometimes it's a little too cold. It's a little too hot. I know this. But I'm talking about the big picture. Look where we are housed. It's and not a penny of indebtedness. Uh, and uh, it's the giving heart of the church, uh, not just for this project. This is one of many that people get get behind. So anyway, thank you for that, and I will keep you posted on things. There's truce now, as you know, and all it is is time out for Hamas to get resupplied. That's That's all it is. There is no peace in the Middle East until the Prince of Peace returns and is invited into the individual hearts of the people in the land. That's, that's not just the case for the Middle East. That's true of America. That's true for every individual. There's no peace apart from the Prince of Peace. But anyway, thank you so much for your generosity. And they were just uh, in this day when Israelis are wondering who's standing with them, they know Sagemont Church is. I don't mean just Jewish Israelis. I hope you understand that. We're not playing this some people are better than other people game. I hope for Israel ministers to Arab peoples in the land as much as they do to Jewish people, and there are some here who can vouch for that. When we go on our service trips over there, we spend as much time with uh, non-Jews as we do with, with Jews because God is no respecter of persons. Okay, so that's that. I've delayed long enough. We are in Luke 23, and I must finish this because I cannot face Brother Chuck one more Sunday. That's all you covered? Anyway, we're going to finish Luke chapter 23 today. And it's a great, great chapter. Look, folks, this is Advent season. We're preparing our hearts for celebration over the birth of the Savior. If he wasn't born, we could not have been born anew. Today's text is not, uh, however, about his birth. It's about his demise. It's about his crucifixion and events surrounding it. So take a look. Luke 23, we're going to pick up where we left off. We're at verse 41. Luke 23, verse 41. It says, and we, now the we, are two thieves, robbers. Remember, they were impaled along with the Lord, one on his right, one on his left. We, indeed, of the two thieves, one is now speaking. We, indeed, are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man, a reference to Jesus impaled alongside of them, but this man has done nothing 
wrong. So you see there one of the essential truths we hold to, and the truth is that Jesus did not deserve to die. Uh, That is a declaration from someone rather close to him, impaled right next to him. This man has done nothing wrong. You will see it is a theme in Luke's report of the events, the innocence of the one who died for the guilty. And you see some of the fundamental elements in what it takes to be saved. Look, we indeed, you have to have an accurate recognition of your nature. We indeed, but this man, and then you have to see your nature to be distinct from his. We indeed, but this man. We indeed are guilty, but this man is innocent. So to be saved, you have to accept who you is as over against who he is. You are, I am, sinful. He is sinless. And that's essential for only a sinless one can die in the place of sinful ones. So the prerequisite that sets him apart as the one uniquely qualified to save is that he has no sin, therefore he can save those who are full of sin. And so somehow this man on the cross, you talk about uh, unlikely places, recognized his guilt and this Jesus' innocence and evoked the mercy of the Lord to effect, as you will see, his own salvation. So verse 42, he was saying, Jesus, remember me when, not if, when you come in your kingdom. Inexplicably, he had a recognition that though the three of them are going to die, that's what happened. Crucifixion always ends in the death of the one crucified. Somehow, he recognized that death would not be the last word with respect to this Jesus. So he said, When all this is over, I'm paraphrasing, will you remember me when you come as king? That's essentially what he's saying. Luke does not see fit uh, to explain to us how this man had the recognition of the eternality of Jesus and that he would return not as suffering servant, but as reigning king. He only said, think of me when you come to, when you return. After death, when you return to establish your kingdom, remember me. And the Lord's response is given in 43. He said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Today, not tomorrow, not next week, not after you clean up your act. Today, you'll be with me. By the way, it's always a today event for the one who makes this appeal to the Lord Jesus. Oh God, accept me as I am. Forgive me a sinner. It's a today new experience. One comes to be immediately in right standing with the only righteous one, the one who has no guilt. Today, the Lord says, you'll be with me in paradise. Interesting word used only three times in the entire New Testament. Here is one occurrence. It is, interestingly, Don, I want you to tell Jale about this. It's a Persian word. 
she probably knows this, but it's, it was uh, intriguing to me to find this out. It's not a Hebrew word. It is not a Greek word. You know, the New Testament is mostly written in Greek. This is a Persian word, paradise. It's used in the Bible almost always with reference to heaven, but literally it means this. It means the enclosed, protected, fertile, green, walled garden of the king. When a Persian king wanted to honor one of his subjects, you know, Persia is modern-day Iran. Persia, that's what we're talking about. When a Persian monarch wanted to honor one of his subjects, he invited the subject to have a walk with him in his garden. That's what paradise is. When the Lord Jesus says, I invite you to be with me, the king, in a verdant, fertile garden called heaven. What makes paradise paradise is the presence of the king, the unobstructed face-to-face presence. As Adam and Eve walked with God before they sinned, so too paradise lost will be paradise regained. That's called heaven. When we have a face-to-face, unobstructed, guilt-free, no shame, no distractions between us and God, when we have that relationship, it's paradise. Now you have this thief on the cross. He's getting really, really thirsty. This is one of the uh, effects of crucifixion, dryness of the mouth. Remember when they offered the Lord something to quench his thirst? This is a very typical response to crucifixion. You dry up. Your tongue cleaves to the top of your mouth. You're dry. Also, the place of crucifixion, that land, if you've been there, and particularly in this day, 2,000 years ago, was largely undeveloped desert, dry and arid. Paradise for this one on the cross would be, don't you see, in the king's well-watered, green, not brown desert, green, lush, uh, walled, enclosed garden. Today, the Lord Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise. Do you notice that the thief, given this tremendous prize, could not obtain it by anything but faith, confidence in the Lord Jesus. Do you notice he was not baptized, the thief? Do you notice he never partook of communion or the Lord's Supper? Do you notice he never made an offering in an offering plate? He went on no missions trip? Do you notice he never... uh, uh, he did no good works. <laughs> Do you notice he did not clean up his act? Do you notice the basis upon which the Lord said, today you will be with me in paradise is on his mercy alone and this man's confession of faith in him. And folks, nothing has changed. That is the basis upon which all down to this day, are saved. It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ plus nothing. Now, I'm not saying those things I listed are unimportant. Baptism, Lord's Supper, giving, all the rest. Those are all the evidences of salvation, but they are not the causes thereof. 
So baptism does not save as important as it is. Do you know this? Baptism proclaims that salvation has already taken place. When one says, come into my life, Lord Jesus, you can't see it. He sends his spirit in you. It's not visible to the naked eye. That's a private transaction. These sinner privately says, oh God, forgive my sin. And then that one, unashamed of his or her decision, publicly proclaims it through baptism. That's why, do you notice when we baptize here, we don't require the one being baptized to give a long story? It's not that that's wrong, but it's not required. They're giving the best story just by being baptized. In being baptized, they're saying, just as I go down into the water, buried, and come up anew, as if I'm resurrected. That's exactly what has happened to me because I put my faith in the one who was buried, was resurrected, and I will follow suit because of my faith in him. So do you notice for those who say you must be baptized to be saved, apparently that wasn't the case with this guy because the Lord says, today you will be with me in paradise. For you who think I'm in the process, I'm sort of maybe going to be saved, but I got to be a better person before the Lord really saves me. Are you aware of the fact that the Lord died for a robber? He didn't have a chance to do anything good. He didn't do anything except to trust in the nature of this Savior as being without sin. He said, we are guilty, but not you. You alone are the sinless one. And he saw the eternality of this one when you return. Are you kidding me? Who has victory over death except the giver of life? God. When you return after death, which is final for all but God, then would you remember me? Let me have eternal life in your kingdom as well. So can you see, don't be confused about the nature of salvation. Listen. For by grace, you have been saved through what? Faith and not as a result of what? Works. Why? Lest anyone should boast. Can you say it? So the thief had nothing to boast in except this sinless one who is dying for me, a sinful one. That's our boast as well. Nothing more. You see it? So anyway, he was saved fully by grace. And what's happening is that this is the equivalent of what we could call a deathbed conversion. Have you heard of deathbed conversions? During the last minute seconds of one's life, that one confesses sin and accepts Jesus as Savior for it. And some claim is immediately fully redeemed and upon passing ushered into the presence of God. Some object to that, understandably, saying, wait a second, do you mean to tell me someone could have lived a godly, Christ-centered life for decades and all of a sudden a moral reprobate with his or her last ounce of breath utters some words and is fully redeemed? The answer is absolutely. If those words are a sincere reflection of the person's heart, absolutely. Why are some of us troubled by deathbed conversion? I'll tell you why. It's a misunderstanding of gospel. 
the gospel is always, at any time in a person's life, on the same basis. It is, through God's grace, contingent upon our faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't make any distinction whether you make that decision as a six-year-old in vacation Bible school or as a 96-year-old who has lived all that time apart from the Lord, but in the end said, Lord Jesus, I've been ungodly. I've tried to live as if I am the master of my own destiny. It is sin. I am a sinner. Please forgive me, even at this late date. Let me spend eternity undeserving though I am with you based on your merits. I believe what you did, you did for me. Forgive me, adopt me, usher me into your kingdom. And the Lord will say exactly what he said to the thief on the cross. Today, your status has changed. Now you have right standing with me based not on your righteousness, but on mine. So those who struggle with deathbed conversion, finding it to be unfair, you're right, it's not fair. It's of grace. It's of mercy. You never, ever want to say to God, Oh God, that's not fair. Please be fair. Don't ever do that. You don't want what's fair. You don't want what you deserve. You want God to change the rules of the standard game. You want him to operate by the rules of grace and mercy, not by the rules of fairness. That's why we call it grace. It means, oh God, don't give me, please, what I deserve. Instead, give me what I don't deserve. And he said, I shall. And that's what he did for this. Do you realize Jesus He never died for nice people. He died for prostitutes. He died for tax collectors. He died for this guy on the cross. By the way, the word thief or robber, um, in the Greek, the language of the New Testament primarily, means someone who has committed armed robbery probably leading to the death of the target of the robbery, which would explain why such a severe penalty is imposed. In the course of armed robbery, they probably killed the person they were seeking to rob. The Roman government intervened with capital punishment. Jesus did not die for nice people. He died for one such as this. So if you are keeping him at arm's length because you think I'm not a nice person, that thought is what qualifies you for salvation. He didn't die for nice people. He didn't die for sinless people. There are none, but some think they are. For instance, the Jewish religious leadership, isn't this an irony? are in worse eternal shape than this murderous armed robber. Because the Jewish religious leadership never repented, expressed sorrow for, and recognition for their sin. Remember they said, we're getting what we deserve, but he is sinless. 
They never did that. They maintained a sense of their own religious self-righteousness. Self-nice people, religious people, don't think they don't need a savior. That's what's so terrible about religion and good deeds. It can fool you into thinking you're good just because you do a few odd good things here and there. It's never good enough to live up this, to the standards of an uh, intensely holy God. So, so, so Jesus, if you're feeling like a horrible person because of stuff you do or think, you have satisfied the prerequisite to be redeemed by a redeemer who can only redeem those who need redemption and who ask him for it. So the thief did and the thief is told today you'll be with me in paradise. By the way, do you notice that what the Lord promised him did not alleviate his sufferings in this world? He's still crucified. He's still dying. Brad? Oh, man, that's good. That is a super point. He's a savior. He has his ways, doesn't he? That is an excellent point. Folks, you know, you you hear from time to time in populist circles that when one accepts Jesus, you'll be healthy and wealthy. Maybe. And just as maybe not. There is no promise in the Bible that the Lord is going to save us from the throes of this life. He promises us to be with us in them and to use them for good and to bring us through them to paradise. But he does not promise us heaven on earth until heaven comes to earth. You have to be careful. I could show you just as much. No, I can show you a super abundance of evidence that living the Christian life is in large measure going to make us subject to the same kinds of things the Savior was subject to. Why should the student be greater than the master, we're told? Uh, He says, they hate you because they hated me. So being treated unfairly, uh, being persecuted, being discriminated against, um, uh, being uh, afflicted by diseases, being laid off, from uh, work, whatever the deal is, folks, these things ought not unduly surprise us. In fact, the Bible says don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal which will come upon you for your perfecting. So you want to really be careful about these promises which seem to be, that are being made by popular spokesmen of the Bible who know not of what they speak. If the Bible promises anything, it promises you will be persecuted as I was persecuted. Why don't I see these prosperity preachers claim that promise? So, folks, be careful. This man was promised a future and an immediate communion with the Lord. His afflictions this side of heaven were not alleviated. In fact, one of the ways in which the Savior is most glorified through us is when we, his people, experience the same kinds of things others do, yet with hope.
that glorifies the Lord, you see? If he just makes us to be immune from the things that befall the rest of the world, how could we testify of the strength and empowerment of the Lord Jesus in our lives to get through things that befall us, you see? Barry, did you have your hand? Promise. That is so good. That is so good. So don't be surprised, folks. And I should, don't misunderstand. We get crushed when things befall us. I would be crushed as well. There's certain things that come our way that take us by surprise. They're just crushing blows. So don't misunderstand. I didn't say put on a happy face or anything. I'm just saying don't be surprised by those things as if you've been let go by God. Oh, no, no, no. He'll never let you go. That the Christian suffers is no evidence that the Christian has been abandoned by God. And the ultimate evidence of it is the suffering of the sinless son. Katya? I do. Well said. I think you're you're so right. I think you're so right. It's kind of a big price to pay. But God doesn't ask us for our permission. He didn't save us for creature comforts. He saved us to glorify him, and that's one way. Doesn't it say we grieve and yet not as those without hope? Don't you see? So that is a good point. Okay, so now um, verse 44, it was about the sixth hour. So that means noon. The sixth hour is noon. About the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. So three hours from noon makes it 3 p.m. We're talking about a three-hour time frame in which darkness fell over the whole land. Why? Verse 45 tells us, because the sun was obscured. Now, the word obscured in Greek is the word from which we get the word eclipse. So some say there was an eclipse of the sun or the moon or something. That's not true because it was Passover time. That's a time of full moon. So the word eclipse does not mean eclipsed in the uh, meteorological sense that we think it is. Do you know what accounted for the darkness? It wasn't an eclipse. It was God. (laughs) He did it. At the most unlikely time, noon, midday. How? I don't know. But this is like an easy thing, don't you see? He made these natural elements, which is why as the maker of natural elements, we refer to him as being supernatural. He's, you're not supernatural. You're bound to space and time. He is unbounded by it. He supersedes the limitations of nature. He can put these things at his disposal. So there's darkness for three hours over the land. Why? It was a God-sent darkness at an unlikely time, noon. Why? With the death of Jesus, who is the light of the world, let me tell you, the light of the world is gone for these three hours. Not only was there this stark darkness, notice, the veil of the temple was torn in two. Who did it? 
God did it. In fact, one of the other accounts, one of the gospel writers tells us it was torn from top to bottom. That was a God thing. What is God saying to us? You know what he's saying? From now on, priests, religious people, you're not the only ones who will have access to the holy place and the holy of holies. Access is open, even to a thief on the cross. From now on, people don't have to go through priests and rabbis and imam and all the rest. People don't need to offer an endless succession of religious sacrifices, bulls and goats and all the rest. People can come directly. The veil is open. People can come directly to me and ask me to forgive them, just as this thief on the cross did, and I shall do it. You do not need any other mediator except me. I'm mediating a covenant between you and God now. You do not need Judaism. You do not need Islam. You do not need... I'll stop there. Okay, so so that is a marvelous, marvelous thing. As the thief made his plea directly to Jesus, let me be with you when you come into your kingdom, he is saying so too could we. You know that this curtain was beautiful, about 60 feet high, about 30 feet wide, crafted out of beautiful colors, purple and blue and scarlet threads. I'm not making this up. You can read about it in Exodus. God designed it this way. In appearance, it's interesting, it was beautiful, but in substance, it was ugly because the message of the curtain was keep your distance. It separated the holy place from the holy of holies in the temple. Only the priest, high priest, could go from courtyard to holy place through the veil, the curtain, into the holy of holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. Nobody else could. It's a beautiful uh, garment, but in reality, it has quite an ugly message. This is given in contrast to the other object in this episode. There's the curtain. Secondly, there's the cross. In appearance, it's the cross, which is quite ugly. But if you think about it in reality, it's really quite beautiful. Because the ugly cross, everyone saw the cross as a form of crucifixion to be entirely unattractive. Are you kidding? Perhaps one of the most excruciating forms of death uh, designed by humankind, a very ugly thing, the whole deal, the public spectacle of a nude victim having been beaten and then impaled on a cross. It's an ugly kind of thing. But the message of the ugly cross is quite beautiful. It says, come near. It says, now you have access to me. It no longer says, keep your distance. It says, if you accept me and what I did for you on the cross today, your whole status will change. And in due season, you too will be with me in paradise. Well, then verse 46, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. This is very surprising to me as I read it. Think about it. A victim of crucifixion is impaled on the cross for hours. It's a horrific form of slow death physiologically. I mean, every aspect of your body is involved, muscles and arteries and veins and everything. Everything is breaking down. So shortly before the purpose of crucifixion takes place, namely death of the victim, you don't have any air 
to expel, but the Lord's closing remark was not done in a faint whisper. The text says, he, in a loud voice, declared, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I find that to be unusual, even miraculous. Why? Well, he didn't want to whisper this. He wanted the world to know death doesn't need not have the last word. He wanted the world to know death didn't call the shots with him. Oh, no! Father, into your hands, upon death, I commit my spirit. I'll be with you after death. And the Lord Jesus wants those who follow him to know the same thing and have the same assurance. We die. It's going to, ha- going to happen unless the Lord comes first. Don't unduly fear it. I don't think you should hasten it. We're not allowed to do that. But I don't think you should fear it as if it's the biggest enemy in the world. It's not. We too cry out, Father, whenever that happens, into thy hand I commit my spirit. The Lord is invoking Psalm 31 verse 5. He knew scripture, didn't he? He took what the psalmist said and he applied it to this situation. And on his terms, when it was time for him to die, he breathed his last and then went to be with the Father. That's going to happen to you too. You know, a Christian is not just someone who lives differently. A Christian is someone who dies differently. Do you fear death? If so, come talk to me. Seriously. Let's talk. I'd like to know why. Let's just talk. See, because the Bible says perfect love, his for us, is meant to cast out fear. So I'm wondering if you still have a, a lingering fear of death. What's going on? I mean it. Give me a buzz. Let's just talk about it. You don't have to have a fear of death. So anyway, the Lord makes this closing statement with an expellation of his final air as if he hadn't been hanging on that cross for six hours. A loud voice. He cries out this declaration. It is a declaration of trust. That's a good thing. If you have the capacity before you pass and there are people around you, utter the same thing. Let them hear. Father, into thy hand I commit my spirit. It's just your body that's being left behind, right? You're getting a new one fit for eternity. That'd be a good thing to leave with people if you could. Anyway, uh, the timing of the Lord's departure was not random. Let me demonstrate this. He died, first of all, on Passover. And he died at 3 p.m. We're told at 3 p.m. And that was the time at which the Passover lamb was sacrificed in the temple precincts by the high priest. So let me read to you this from Exodus chapter 12, verse 6. And you, Moses is saying to Israel, shall keep it, the Passover, until the 14th day of the same month. The month is a month called Nisan, 14th day. Earlier in Exodus 12, the people were told to get a lamb, keep it for 10, uh, on the 10th day of the month, keep it for four days, and on the 14th day, offer it. What'd they do for those four days with the lamb? They examined it carefully to make sure it was a male without defect. It's a foreshadowing of the examination imposed upon the Lord by Pilate, by Herod, by the Jews, by everyone. They couldn't find anything that he had done wrong, so they made up stuff about him. He is the ultimate unblemished male Passover lamb. 
So on the 14th day of Nisan, then the whole assembly of the congregation. Why the whole assembly? Because the whole assembly has a sin nature and needs to make an offering for sin, just as we do. Then the whole congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Twilight literally means between the evenings. In Jewish time reckoning, it means between the hours of 3 to 6 p.m. 14th of Nisan, 3 to 6 p.m. Josephus tells us, at the time when Jesus was crucified, Josephus is a first century Jewish historian. He said there were approximately 256,500 lambs killed in sacrifice in Jerusalem in the year the Lord was crucified. At the time the Lord was crucified, quarter of a million. Now with that many lambs being offered in sacrifice during Passover in Jerusalem, it was necessary for the whole procedure to begin early at 9 a.m. And 9 a.m. is exactly the hour at which time the Lord was crucified. He died at 3 p.m., but he was crucified at 9 a.m. Listen, Mark chapter 15, verse 25. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. The third hour is 9 a.m. When the priests in Jerusalem were preparing all of these lambs to offer in Passover sacrifice, at the same time, the Lord was impaled upon a cross. And then later at 3 p.m., the priest of Israel climbed the altar of sacrifice in the temple court on which the Passover lamb was tied, offered on behalf of the nation of Israel. He took a knife, he slit the throat of the lamb, he, everyone observed as its blood seeped out of it, it died, and then the priest uttered remarkable words. He said, it is finished. And at exactly the same hour, three o'clock in the afternoon, the ultimate Lamb of God, Jesus, died, prior to which he uttered a loud cry prior to breathing his last. And the cry was, it is finished. You must not think man has power to execute the king. The king permitted it. If he saved himself, the thief would not be saved. If he saved himself, we, not nice people, would not be saved. It's all orchestrated from before. It's not the Jews. It's not the Romans. It's not the Republicans. It's not the Democrats. It's not the Southerners. It's not the Northerners. It's not the blacks. It's not the whites. Nobody has power to coerce God into doing what God does not choose to do. It's really, really good to know that our God reigns. He's in control, even at the moment of his departure. So his departure was ordained by God. Now, when the centurion, that's a Roman soldier, 
saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. So the innocence of the suffering servant is a theme reported by Luke. So in Luke 23, same chapter, verse 4, when Pilate examined Jesus, we read, then Pilate said, I find no guilt in him. Again, verse 14, Pilate again, I find no guilt in him. Verse 22, he said the third time, what evil has this man done? I find no guilt in him. Then he sent to Herod, and we read this in verse 15, no, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us, and behold, nothing deserving death has been done. Pilate found no guilt in him. Herod found no guilt in him. Then the very criminal crucified alongside the Lord also confessed his innocence. We read it in verse 41. We are suffering justly. We are receiving what we deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And now, finally, we see someone totally different demographic, our hardened Roman soldier. He now declares the innocence of Jesus. He said, certainly, this man was innocent. What's Luke's point? I think he at the least wants those of us who follow Jesus to be reminded that though he died as a criminal, he was none. He died for our crimes. He was innocent of his own. He committed none. He was innocent. And people in all strata of society then, seeing the manner in which he lived and died, declared his innocence. And verse 48, all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, that's what it was. It's a day in the park. It's a Roman recreation. When they observed what had happened, they began to return beating their breasts. Now, that's not party time. That's a sign of Middle Eastern grief. What are they grieving? I don't know. Maybe they realized an innocent one was crucified. Luke wrote another book. Luke the sequel. Do you know what it's called? Acts. And in Acts, the gospel goes forth amongst these very people. In my opinion, many of these get saved in Acts. They saw how he lived, but they saw how he died. And when the apostles went forward with power and shared the gospel, I think many of these came to be saved. Verse 49, all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him all the way from Galilee, Galilee's up north, Jerusalem down south. All of these were standing at a distance seeing these things. And a man named Joseph, a member of the council. What's another word for the council? Yeah, the Sanhedrin. This guy's a big shot. He's a member of the ruling political establishment of Israel. This guy's a member of the council. He's a good and righteous man. He had not consented to their plan and action. Whoa. This Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, did not consent. Their decision was, he's guilty. Let's send him to Pilate for execution. Somehow, Joseph of Arimathea didn't vote that way. Why? Did he dissent when they met, or was he not there? Maybe he didn't get invited, Tom. See, I don't know the answer, but you could be right. Maybe they just didn't invite him. At any rate, this guy did not go along with what his comrades decided about Jesus. And he's a guy from Arimathea. It says it's a city of the Jews. Where is it? It's in Israel. Where? I don't have any. Nobody knows. There's a lot of discussion. About it. Anyway, it's a place called Arimathea. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. This guy, this guy 
Joseph. Verse 52, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Are you kidding me? Why is he doing it? Well, I know why he's doing it. You have to take the body off the cross before the Sabbath. I understand that. But in doing this, he's risking his life. He's going to Pilate and is identifying himself with someone executed as a criminal of Rome. So he's putting himself at risk. But what moved him to do it? We are told he was not a really bold guy. He was a secret disciple. Let me read this to you. John 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away the body. What would have moved a secret, timid, undercover, secret service Christian, if you will, what would have moved him to blow his cover, come out, and identify publicly with Jesus? Well, it was this. It was the death of Jesus that forced Joseph out of hiding. See, I think Joseph realized what many of us, most of us here, have realized it's this. A God who would die for us is worth taking some risks for. Don't you agree? It kind of moves you out of your little political correct, I want to fit in, I want people to like me stuff. And you realize, what? A God willing to die for me is worthy of me speaking up for him. So Joseph came out of hiding upon the death of Jesus, asked for the body of Jesus. Verse 53, took it down, wrapped it in a linen cloth, laid it in a tomb, cut in the rock where no one had ever lain. See, usually victims of crucifixion were taken down by Romans and dumped in like a communal uh, dumping ground, for, frankly, for bodies. They were buried as criminals. But, 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 but when they laid Jesus in a tomb, God saw to it that his son would not suffer this indignity. When they took him down, when Joseph took him and laid him in a tomb, I don't think he realized he was acting in fulfillment of a prophecy given 700 years earlier by Isaiah. I'll read it to you. Isaiah 53, verse 9. His grave. I'd like you to read Isaiah 53 sometime. His. Who's the his? Yeah, his grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet, he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth. So God the Father superintended to the burial of his son. Listen, if things didn't go this way, the Romans would have taken it down, put him in a common grave and lit it on fire. Then you have ashes. Now, if all you have is ashes, you know what you have? I'll tell you what you don't have. You don't have evidence to support the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Well, you don't have a tomb emptied of a body because there was no body to be put in the tomb. Second, you don't have a post-resurrection bodily appearance of Jesus if his body was burnt. You see how God left us with two evidences of resurrection. Empty tomb. It's empty. There was a physical body put in it. When they went there, it's gone. How do you explain it? After that, he appeared. Oh, my goodness. He appeared in a physical body, you see? So God superintended all this for us so that we have evidences of the resurrection. Well, it was preparation day. That means the day before Sabbath. You get ready for Sabbath. And the Sabbath was about to begin. Folks, for six days, after six days, God finished the work of creation. 
And then he rested. And after six hours, the Lord finished the work of redemption. And then he rested on the Sabbath in a tomb. And because he rested, you and I can rest. We don't have to work for our salvation. It's the ultimate Sabbath rest. Rest in the finish, redemptive work of Jesus. People say to me as a Jew, you're no longer a Jew, you don't keep the Sabbath. Oh, yes, I do. I'm resting in the Lord of the Sabbath. The purpose of the Sabbath is rest. Cease from work. I don't work for my salvation. I trust in the finished work of Jesus who rested from his. You see? So anyway, uh, verse 55 The women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Why is that important? In the very first verse of the next chapter, we're told on the first day of the week, what day is that? That's why we're here today. Sunday. We didn't come here yesterday, did we? Sabbath. We came today. This is not the Christian Sabbath. This is Sunday. There is no Christian Sabbath. The Sabbath was given to the Jews. It's the fourth commandment, Exodus 20. It's the only of the Ten Commandments not repeated in the New Testament. In fact, the Lord said to religious leaders who rebuked his followers for breaking the Sabbath, why do they do it? He says, the Sabbath is subservient to them, not the other way around. You see? So we're meeting today because these ladies, they went to this place... Luke 24, 1 says, First day of the week, early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing spices which they prepared. Now, why is that important? One of the criticisms of the resurrection theory is that these ladies came this next day, Sunday morning, but they went to the wrong tomb. The reason why it was empty is they, they were mistaken about where the body of Jesus was placed. No, 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 no. The prior verse makes it clear. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Do you think a few hours later they're going to forget the tomb that they saw? This is just contrary to logic and rules of evidence. If I had to argue a case in the court of law, I want this one. I want, ev- I want to argue evidence for the resurrection. Empty tomb, post-resurrection appearances, credible witnesses, these ladies, for crying out loud. They had no stock in fabricating this deal. They didn't believe it was going to happen. They were standing in the background. They knew exactly where the body was laid. So they came with these uh, spices and so on in verse 56. Sabbath is over. It's now Sunday. They return and prepared spices and perfumes. Why? Not to embalm. Jews, we don't embalm. We don't preserve a physical body. Why? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We don't think the physical body is the essence of the person. We think the neshuma, the spirit, the soul, is the essence of the person. By the way, that's pretty consistent with the Bible, don't you think? The bodies are left behind. We don't need these things anymore in eternity. Did you know that? We get new stuff. It's the essence of the person, the soul, the spirit that goes on. So they return, they prepare spices and perfume. So if they're not embalming, what are all these spices for? I don't want to gross you out, but the body is decaying and deteriorating. Folks, it's a sign of respect. There are grotesque smells. Have you been around a decaying corpse? 
So they're doing this as a sign of respect. And on the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. Folks, I will close. Those are always good words, people like that. I will close with this. Do you notice what these ladies did? Do you notice what these ladies could not do? They could not defend Jesus in the court of the Sanhedrin because the testimony of women was not given much credibility. They couldn't fight off the crowd. Uh, they couldn't go against the Roman soldiers. There's just like a ton of stuff these women couldn't do. They didn't seem to labor over what they couldn't do because they were too immersed in what they could do. What they do? They followed Jesus to the cross. They honored him. And they worshipped him. What a message. They are the heroines of the faith. We need to be like these ladies, regardless of gender. Male, female, black, white, political party, rich, poor, educated, not, whatever the deal is, old, young. We are so focused on what we can't do, demanding our rights. We're getting distracted from what we could do. We could follow Jesus to the cross. Politics can't keep us from doing that. Age can't keep us from doing that. Race can't keep us from doing that. Come on. We could follow Jesus to the cross no matter who we are. In fact, he invites it. We could devote ourselves to him. We could worship him, just as these ladies did. May it be true that until the time of his return, see, today we're with him. There's nothing keeping us from him. One day we will actually be with him in paradise. Until then, we have plenty to do. We follow him to the cross. It's a reality for us. It's granted us access. We can honor him. We could worship him. We could devote ourselves to him. We can make him sweet smelling to the world around us who so defames him. We don't have to preserve his body. It's resurrected. But we could pour upon him the sweet-smelling, fragrant aroma of praises and adoration, just as these ladies did. We have plenty to do. The world cannot put a limit on our unbridled devotion to the Lord. Only you can. Only I can. Have you found the enemy? It's you and me. We're the ones who get in the way of what we're called to do. No human institution can keep us doing what these ladies did. Follow Jesus to the cross. Honor him. Make sure he's represented in a sweet-smelling, pleasing way. Devote yourself to him until he returns. Lord Jesus, that's our heart's desire. For us, this is not just a history lesson. It's a sermon for today. We would like to be like these early followers, these ladies who did what they could and didn't focus on what they were not permitted to do. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for making us, by our confession of faith in your finished work on the cross, with you today and looking forward to being with you eternally in the King's Garden. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you, folks. We went two minutes over. I owe you two minutes. We'll subtract it from Chuck's time next week. <laughs>